I'm Melaena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. What is cloud computing? Is this about where we compute or how we compute? In today's episode, Cornelia Davis, Senior Director of Technology at Pivotal, answers these questions. Cornelia and I also walk through the fundamental patterns in cloud computing as they emerge when a service grows from 1,000 users to millions. We also talked about the potential end of cloud computing. Cornelia Davis, Senior Director of Technology at Pivotal, is joining us this morning. Cornelia, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. You work on guiding customers to develop a cloud platform strategy, specifically with the Pivotal Cloud Foundry platform. First of all, how do you define cloud computing? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and that's a, a very common misconception, quite frankly. Um, I think that a lot of people think of cloud computing as simply moving their computing from their own internal data centers into somebody else's data centers, say Google or Microsoft or Amazon. Yeah. And that's not actually... Um, that's not actually really that game-changing. It's, it's a little bit, and it actually comes back to that. Um, once you have some other things in place, but it doesn't fundamentally change necessarily software architectures. So for me, cloud computing is more about the how than the where. Um, so you can do quote unquote cloud computing in your own data center. And what I mean by the how is that you need to write your applications in such a way that the cloud actually represents a fundamentally different infrastructure than previously. Previously, the infrastructures, and I, I come from, I worked at Documentum. My road to Pivotal was via Documentum and EMC and then the, the spin-out. And Documentum was built 25, 30 years ago, and it was an application, an enterprise application that was built to, depending on the infrastructure being stable. And so if the infrastructure had some kind of a problem, the Oracle database or the storage system or even the compute nodes, then Documentum would throw up his hands and say, there's nothing we can do about that. The infrastructure broke, it's not our fault. But in cloud now, the point is that things are always breaking or changing. Maybe they're changing because we're patching an operating system vulnerability or something like that. And we still need to run. So in order to do that, in order to have software that runs even when the substrate that it's running on is constantly in flux, that to me is what cloud computing is. One of the things you mentioned is a change in the architecture. When you start out with a service, at the very beginning, should we keep in mind to architect it a certain way because maybe later on there's, it's going to have more users or things like that? Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's not even the eventual explosion of users, that's one of the drivers. Mm -hmm. um, but there are absolutely architectural patterns that you need to think about. And, and the industry as a whole has been talking about these things for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Um, it's becoming mainstream now. The, 
the work that I do at Pivotal, our customers are enterprise customers. They're not generally the startups. And so some of these concepts of design for failure, design for um, adaptable scale needs, as opposed to trying to predict those and do capacity planning in this very weird way in the beginning, those things have been adopted by the startup community to with great success over the last decade or so. It's been a little slower uptake on the, the enterprise side, and that's essentially what I do for a living, is I work with enterprises to help them make these shifts. Um, but some of those architectural patterns are things like being very deliberate about the boundary between the compute and the persistence in your applications. So, for example, the notion of statelessness in your applications. So when I say that your applications need to keep running, even though the substrate is shifting under under your feet, the way that we can do that is if you if your compute is completely stateless, then when the node that you were, were computing on goes away, no big deal. We'll just start that compute up on a different node. If we don't have to worry about bringing, saving that any kind of internal state in memory and doing snapshots and all of that stuff. And we're very deliberate about pushing all the state off into an external service. And we're very deliberate about the architectural boundary there. Then something like a platform as a service can just restart that, that application for you on another node. And you've got the other important thing is redundancy making sure you have multiple copies so that when the one goes down, you're still serving traffic on the other. So those are examples of some of the architectural tenants that you need to follow to be able to work in this new substrate. And one of the ways to move the state to a different place is by using blob storage or something like MongoDB, right? Exactly. That's what I mean about be deliberate about where your state is. So the state can be in your blob storage. It can be in your MongoDB, it can be in your Cassandra or your Gemfire or your Kafka or any of those things, um, but you, you, you make that separation. You make it very, very clear. And that's, again, not an architectural pattern that we used very successfully. Um, even a lot of web applications still store state and memory. Um, although we've gotten pretty good at, at externalizing HTTP session state, but there's still a lot of stuff where People are using sticky sessions, for example. They say, ah, well, once the user's logged in, we're going to keep sending subsequent requests from that user to the same node. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, if that node goes away, then all of that HTTP session state goes away with it. But you can, just like you just described, you you wouldn't use a blob store likely for that. You would probably use some kind of key value store. To, store, to externalize that session state so that when that node goes away, well, all of that session state has been recorded in something that is very deliberately being kept to a different standard that's more stable, that has kind of its, its uh, um, processes in place to do replication, for example. So one of the ways that it stays stable, it also doesn't expect every node to be there forever. What it does is it makes, it has embedded algorithms around replication so that I'm not just storing the HTTP session state on one node, it's actually replicated on multiple nodes. Redundancy is one of those patterns that is incredibly important in the cloud. 
So we put redundancy everywhere. Redundancy in the compute, the stateless compute tier. We put redundancy in the data tier. That's an, an inherent part of it. Yes, and we'll get to talk about redundancy a little bit later on. And first, I want to understand more cloud computing concepts and patterns as they emerge. I want to walk through the different stages of the process by thinking of an example, like a service, a simple service for po posting pictures of cats. And this service has several users. It's, it's a small service. It has about 1,000 users. So the, the first thing that I'm curious about is more about a combination of the where and the how. Once we decide to move this service to the cloud, we don't need to buy our own servers and infrastructure, which is what AWS pioneered with the infrastructure as a service. But we also have platforms like Cloud Foundry, which from what I understand provides an abstraction above the infrastructure. And this is known as a platform as a service. So when we're getting started with thinking about our cloud platform, how do we know when just using an infrastructure as a service is enough versus something more elaborate like a platform as a service? Yep. So um, the answer, the really simple answer of that is if you are building something new or even if you have something that is already reflecting some of the patterns that we just talked about. So if you, for example, have a, a Java Spring app that is already pretty good about separating out the state from the statelessness part, the business logic, then there is really no reason to take that to infrastructure as a service. Platform as a service is the architecture of the future. And I'll give you a very concrete example in just a moment that really ties very closely to even the scenario that you're painting of a simple service that only has a thousand users. I'll come back to that in, in just a second. Mm -hmm. But the applications that are really still suitable for the infrastructure as a service, because I like what you said, Amazon definitely pioneered this idea of, well, you don't have to have these long procurement cycles. You can just go and self-service obtain the infrastructure resources that you need. That self-service is such an incredibly enabling and powerful thing that yeah. yes, that's been completely revolutionary. Um, and so, but if you already have an application and you have an application, so such as Documentum, for example, an enterprise application that doesn't reflect these cloud native patterns that has a dependence on the primitives that are available through infrastructure as a service. So when you're deploying the application, it has to know about servers and storage devices and IP addresses and ports. And those are things that the application's been designed around these infrastructure primitives. Mm -hmm. then those are the things that are absolutely suitable to still go on infrastructure as a service. But you're right, the, the platform as a service, the abstractions, the new abstractions that it offers actually does a couple of really important things. Number one, it definitely is making 
um, well, probably three different things. It's making um, deployment of applications accessible to a broader community. So you no longer need to be an in expert at infrastructure and provisioning infrastructure because Amazon didn't get rid of that. You still have to know how to set up security groups and and um, and uh, uh, key pairs and all of that stuff. It just is doing it on their servers, but you have to go into the console and you still have to know an awful lot about infrastructure setups to be able to do that. So yeah. platform as a service gets rid of that layer. It, it makes that simpler. A direct result, a net effect of that, is that it opens up the opportunity. It really enables DevOps. So now it means that not only am I able to, to self-service consume um, com compute and storage resources through this platform as a service metaphor, but I'm able to do my own operations on that as well. So the, those having those abstractions, I think, is is really really powerful and enabling. But if you don't mind, I want to go back to your example of the the thousand users on the cat service. One of the things that that platform as a service offers over the top of infrastructure as a service. So I love to talk about this because every once in a while, Amazon has an outage and we've heard about those. Yeah. And an availability zone goes down or a region goes down. And I, I, I actually recently dug into, in September 2015, there was an outage and it was very interesting how, how, and I won't go into all the details, but it was a very interesting, if you dig into the details, it was, there was a change in DynamoDB, mm -hmm. um, that change in DynamoDB ended up causing retries. By the way, retries are another one of those patterns that's an important as a part of cloud computing, mm -hmm. is that, um, you know that the network's not always there. And so yeah. we, even as users, sometimes we go to a web page and it doesn't end up rendering. And so what do we do? We hit the refresh button. So refresh, we, yeah. as humans, do a retry. Well, having clients, having part of, you know, having part of your application do the, the equivalent of the refresh button, the retry is another important pattern in cloud computing. So anyway, they had this problem with Dynamo. They, they actually released a new feature in DynamoDB that caused a bunch more retries to happen. Well, when retries, if, if you don't have yet another cloud pattern in place, i.e. a circuit breaker, which says, hey, if I'm retrying and it's not working, well, yeah. flip the switch because I don't want to burn down the house. Well, in this yeah. particular case, they didn't have that circuit breaker in place. So these retries ended up causing a cascading failure. Now, they recognized it very, very quickly and corrected that, but it took a while for all of that, um, all of the, the cascading failures to basically reset themselves. So anyway, that, that's not really the point. It was just an interesting thing because I really dug deep and, to understand what, what caused it and what might have happened differently. But also, you mentioned they, re they recognize it quickly and recover quickly, but that is also a relative term because I think something small like a second for Amazon can cost millions of dollars in losses. So depending on the, the field and your application, right? 
even if it's just like five minutes can be catastrophic. Oh, absolutely. It can cost millions and millions of dollars in five minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was really interesting about that is that that overall the outage lasted hours. We're not even talking about for some of the consumers that were running on Amazon, the outages lasted for hours. So we're talking orders of magnitude different than what you just uh, the example that you just gave. Yeah. Now, one of the most famous consumers of AWS is Netflix. Netflix was down for minutes, despite the fact that the Amazon outage as a whole lasted much longer. Netflix was down for just minutes. And that was because they had architected their application to anticipate those outages. And so what happened, of course, though, there were some companies that didn't have that architecture, didn't have that that in place. And um, so they were down for hours. And every time something like that happens, there's a contingent, there's kind of a, a, a loud chorus of voices that says, Amazon, it's all your fault. And I always yeah. point out that it's not Amazon's fault at all. Amazon never, ever, ever said, we will not have outages. What they do is they give you multiple availability zones and multiple regions. And it's up to you to distribute your application in such a way, architect your application in such a way, and and not only architect it, but deploy it and manage it in such a way that you're taking advantage of that redundancy. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. A lot of companies don't do that because it's hard. It's not easy to do that. It takes additional effort and it's not business logic specifically. So especially when you have a startup, they want to spend as much time as possible adding features to their product. And so that's the difference between infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. So platform as a service embeds those concerns. So Cloud Foundry, for example, when you have Cloud Foundry deployed in an environment with multiple availability zones, when the developer or the application DevOps person deploys that cat application, Mm -hmm. the platform will automatically make sure that half of the instances are in one availability zone and half are in the other availability zone. That's no longer a developer concern. And that's, that's the difference between platform as a service. And that's why I say, if you're building a new application, build it against the new primitives because we're doing a lot of work for you. This replication, is this part of having the resilient system? Exactly. It's, okay. it's absolutely part. So now you can imagine when one of those availability zones goes down, mm-hmm. you still have half of your workload working. And by the way, another thing that Platform as a Service does is it keeps an eye on, um, on the state of your system. So, so Cloud Foundry is an inherently and eventually consistent system. So mm-hmm. it's very different from something like Chef or Puppet, which is here's a list of instructions to set everything up and we go through those instructions and then we're done. There is no notion of Cloud Foundry never assumes that you are done. There's no such thing as done in the cloud because the cloud is always changing. 
And so this Cloud Foundry as a platform as a service is constantly, when you say, I want 10 instances of my app to serve my thousand users, and you yeah. lose an availability zone, and now you only have five, the way that it works is it constantly is watching the actual state of the system, comparing it to your expressed desired state, which is, I want 10 instances. And as soon as there's a discrepancy, and it could be an outage, or it could be an upgrade. You could be upgrading the operating system that these things are running on, which you do as a rolling upgrade. Yeah. And as a part of that rolling upgrade, we take down one node. So now you're running nine instances instead of 10. The platform will recognize that and say, oh, I need to spin up a new instance for you. All happens behind the scenes. You don't even have to know. Which is why having a stateless application matters. Exactly. So expanding more on the system outages problem, one solution that you brought up was having a resilient system and Cloud Foundry takes care of this. And the other thing is what we mentioned earlier, architecting your service in a way that you can be prepared for those outages. Netflix clearly was prepared because they were down for only four minutes. I was reading about this and what they did was they released a chaos monkey, which is a service with the purpose of randomly taking down your own servers. Why is it important to have a service dedicated to taking down your own servers? Here's the thing. They don't just do that in mm -hmm. test environments. They actually do that in prod. <laughs> Which yeah. is totally mind-blowing. And when I talk to... I spend a lot of time with, with customers. And when I talk to customers and I'm like, you know what? I want you to experiment in production. I want you to do things like take down servers. That, that's like a mind-blowing concept for them. It's, it's just... Yeah. So that, that's just amazing. And, and the reason it's so important is that these, I started my career, I've been doing this for a long time. When I started my career, I worked on embedded systems. So we had single node systems where we knew exactly what was running on each node, when, and I remember drawing diagrams where we, we even, we got super sophisticated once we, It was an embedded system that had three processors and we actually drew out kind of a schematic that said, okay, if we do this computing on this first node, then it's gonna, our estimate is that it's gonna take about 30 milliseconds. It was image processing stuff. So it was, we have to do multiple frames per second. And then this other processor is gonna do some processing, but it needs some of the, some of the content from the first processing and so on. It was very, very, very static. But it was not a highly distributed system. Three nodes is not a highly distributed system. The cloud is a distributed system. And it is a distributed system that has hundreds of thousands, millions of nodes, and especially as we start moving into, you know, the, the edge and IoT and that, those types of things, we're talking about billions of nodes. So it's this inherently huge, complex distributed system. And we can no longer write tests to test all possible scenarios. We can't do it. So the only way that we can know 
whether something is going to work if something else breaks is to break it ourselves and to break it in a way that we don't necessarily anticipate. And that's why we take down what, what are the things that can happen in a cloud computing environment? Well, you can lose a whole node. And they do these things, by the way. They don't unleash the chaos monkey at 3 in the morning. They unleash the chaos monkey at 10 in the morning when there's a whole bunch of traffic on there and all of their engineers are available so that if something goes wrong, they can troubleshoot it and fix it quickly. And so this is another one of those things that this shift in computing and shift in whole, the whole DevOps thing has radically changed things. A lot of companies are still doing deployments at two in the morning and on the weekends. At Pivotal, we run, we run our, our platform as a service, run.pivotal.io. We only do deployments during working hours. That's the only time we do them. We don't do them at two in the morning. We don't do them on the weekends. We do them when our engineers are available, but our system's designed for rolling upgrades and things like that. And yeah, sometimes things go wrong and it's really a non-event. And that, that's, I, I think non-event is the key word here, is that Chaos Monkey is all about making, is turning outages into non-events. And do you know if the way the Chaos Monkey was first released was if you have a pre-production environment, you first try it out there and then make changes to prod and then release it to prod. Yeah, no question. Okay. No question you should be running your Chaos stuff in staging environments and pre-prod environments. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not suggesting that you do all manual testing and then you do only do the Chaos Monkey stuff in prod. And in yeah. fact, my, my recommendation to clients usually is, okay, I want you to start thinking about doing these things in prod, but you know what? You're not ready yet. That's your beacon. That's where you want to get to. But let's start in a staging environment. Let's, let's put Chaos Monkeys in place there first. And, and because you, it's not only just the release of Chaos Monkey, you have, to, you have to retrain your staff, you have to change your processes, you have to learn how to, to, how to use this stuff effectively. And that I want you to do in a staging environment. Is there an option in Cloud Foundry to release a Chaos Monkey? So we, it's not a part of the shipping Pivotal Cloud Foundry product. It's not deeply embedded, although you will be seeing that in the future. There are, um, one of the great things about Cloud Foundry is it's based on open source. And we yeah. have a, a tremendously vibrant community around that. And so there are several open source projects out there that are doing things that are adding some of these chaos-like capabilities into Cloud Foundry um, that are in the open source community. We've talked about availability and resiliency of a system. Another important concept is scaling. What are options that we have for scaling a service or an app that's in the cloud? Yep. Um, oh, that, that is such a great question um, because it really comes down to a topic that I'm actually working on a blog post with a colleague of mine on, which is around capacity planning. Um, the old way of doing capacity planning was that we, we came up with a kind of prediction of what our user population was going to be. And then we had to provision the physical infrastructure and then we had to stand up the middleware on top of that. And here's the first thing is that we can't possibly know that we are going to be slash dotted and that we're going to go from a thousand users to a million users in a few hours. We can't know that. That's not something we can predict. And, but then this fear around 
being under-provisioned drove people to over-predict a lot of things. So we have a lot of over-provisioning of compute resources. And so that is a whole thing that changes in the cloud world. And there's a couple of things. So first of all, scaling from a thousand users to a million users should be as simple as saying, hey, scale my system. It should be a, and in the Cloud Foundry setting, what we do is we have a command called CF scale, and we can yeah. go from 10 instances to 100 instances, orders of magnitude. We just say CF scale, we now need 100 instances. Now I'm using the word instance, which is really important here because another architectural tenant that you need to have in cloud computing is you need to design those stateless apps in a way that they can be horizontally scalable. My unit of scaling are instances of applications, not throwing a whole better, bigger infrastructure at it. It's not, let me take my five instances and give them more power. It's let me give you 50 instances. And this is known as horizontal scaling. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of vertical scaling, which is let me take an existing instance and make it taller by making it bigger. Yeah. Or increasing the memory. Exactly. When do we use horizontal versus vertical or is it a combination? What does CF scale is just only horizontal scaling? Um, CF scale is horizontal scaling. Exactly. Um, now, it's interesting in that there, one of the things that's happening in one of the, the area that I focus on, I've, I've been with Cloud Foundry working on kind of the application tier for the last four years or so. But recently, I've started focusing more on um, data and how we bring data into this platform, this cloud native platform in a very meaningful way. And one flavor of that, that actually kind of bridges the gap between computing and, and, and persistence is in-memory data grids. And so in-memory data grids, what's so interesting about what's happening in this space is that Amazon now offers a server that has two terabytes of RAM in it. Wow. <laughs> 13, I think it's $13.88 per hour, but that's pretty huge. And so yeah. when you ask about is CF scale just horizontal scaling? Yes, that specific command is just horizontal scaling because that's just in the compute space. Mm -hmm. But um, it just so happens that Pivotal has an in-memory data grid. It's Gemfire. And this is an area that I'm working on is, is bringing Gemfire into the platform. Um, and that's one area where you can imagine saying, well, okay, in-memory data grids, what are they used for? Historically, they're used for very niche applications, fraud detection in financial applications. And historically, they've been, they're incredibly powerful, but they're, they've been kind of hard to program. It takes a lot of knowledge about the grid itself. And what we're trying to do, just as we simplified like we talked about earlier, we made dev and ops accessible to a, a broader percentage of the, the development community because they don't need to know infrastructure idiosyncrasies anymore. We provided a new abstraction. We're doing the same thing now with these in-memory 
computing. Instead of it just being this complex event processing to use for fraud detection and things like that, there's lots of use cases that are immediately required for distributed stateless computing, like caching. So you yes. want you want to have caches all over the globe so that they're quickly accessible and things like that. And that's an area where you can say, well, okay, when I'm initially doing my caching um, for my ten, my thousand users of my cat service, I, I don't need a, that two terabyte VM. But when I do go viral and I now have a million users, maybe I want to scale up my in-memory data grid to handle more caching load. And that's where um, it's, this is something that we're, we're developing right now. Um, we have a whole nother substrate as a part of Cloud Foundry that isn't hugely well known, but it's for those of you who do know it, it's called Bosch. And it's the layer that actually bridges the gap between the infrastructure as a service and this platform as a service abstraction that comes on top of it. And that's something where you can go in and you can say, you know what, I was running on this, this type of a VM that had half a terabyte, and now I want to scale that to two terabytes. And doing that with zero downtime, rolling upgrade, canaries, and those types of things is also something that's really important. And so it's really, there, there's still a place for vertical scaling, but at the application tier, you should be thinking about horizontal scaling. And this this project for the abstraction for in-memory data grid will be part of the vertical scaling option provided by Cloud Foundry, right? It, it's going to be both, actually. I think that there's there's definitely going to be this scenario that we just talked about, which is you can decide, oh, well, I was using half a terabyte before. But yeah. then you're also going to be able to scale the number of nodes in your in-memory data grid, because the in-memory data grid itself is a distributed system. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to scale that to more nodes as well. And what you just described also gives me an idea of the type of work that you do at Pivotal, which from what I understood is identifying a pattern or a component that you can do yourself in a infrastructure as a service, but making that abstraction more accessible to others, right? Yep, yep, exactly. So, you know, going back to the story we told earlier about you're deploying this on Amazon. If you're doing it directly on infrastructure as a service, you have to take on this all of these burdens of, well, I have to worry about multiple availability zones and so on. Um, the reason that starts, quote unquote, startups, they're not startups anymore, but the reason that companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and Netflix have been so successful is that they didn't just use the old manner of architectures and DevOps, you know, operations practices and so on, they built platforms that provided the ability to have these new operational models and things like that. And so that is exactly what motivates us at Pivotal. We are looking to enable enterprises to have that platform so that they can basically spend a lot more of their time focusing on providing value creation for their consumers and less time on all of the overhead that comes with that. Keeping things running, worrying about resilient systems. That So everything, before we put it into Cloud Foundry, we look and see what, what, what does this enable the consumer of the platform 
doesn't allow them to spend more time on value creation rather than the plumbing, the undifferentiated heavy lifting. The last thing I want to talk about is this idea of the end of cloud computing. I first heard about this in a talk from Peter Levine from Andresen Horowitz. You also mentioned this earlier, and what he states is that cloud computing will move back to the edge and leverage the Internet of Things, and the computing will move there. What do you think about this extreme idea? Do you think cloud computing will end completely or will have a hybrid? Or What are your thoughts on this? I absolutely agree that more compute is going to go to the edge, and that is a fantastic thing. Um, and I love that. However, a tremendous amount of the value that we are getting out of cloud computing is in the aggregate. For example, the ability to do analytics over the, the data that is brought in from the Internet of Things is the value. That, sure, I love the fact that I can control my thermostat from my phone. That's a great thing. And that, quite frankly, has been around for a while. You've been able to control your thermostat from your phone for a while. But you know what Nest did? Sure, mm -hmm. with Nest, you can control your thermostat from your phone. Yeah. But they did something that was even bigger than that. What they did was they actually put artificial intelligence in place. And you can only do AI if you have a lot of data. And it's, so it's that data in aggregate, and it's being able to do that analysis and then find the things that we as humans can't find in data. It's using the, you know, the power of computing and the power of data science and, and mathematics and, and all of those types of things to find the gems in that data. And those types of things are going to allow us to optimize energy grids, maybe reduce um, the amount of coal that we need to burn, um, allow us to optimize, maybe start to learn how to do a better job storing the energy that comes from solar system, you know, from, from solar panels, those types of things. And is that all of that computing going to happen at the edge? Well, you know what? I don't know, maybe someday, but we are so, so, so far away from that. Right now, we still have to think of the, the data as a whole, and yeah. it's a distributed system, and cloud is all about taking the distributed system and allowing you to use it as a whole. The edge just becomes part of that distributed system. I don't think it's going to be exclusively that distributed system for a very long time. Well, Cornelia, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you this morning. Thank you, Adina. It has truly been a pleasure. I, I love geeking out, so it's really fun.